English con salsa. Written by Gina Valdez. Welcome to ESL 100. English surely Latinized. English con chile y cilantro. English as American as Benito Juarez. Welcome, muchachos from Hochicalco. Learn the language of Dólares and Dolores, of Kings and Queens, of Donald Duck and Batman. Holy Toluca. In four months, you'll be speaking like George Washington. In four weeks, you can ask, more coffee? In two months, you can say, may I take your order? In one year, you can ask for a raise. Cool as the Tuxpan River. Welcome, muchachas from Teo Altiche. In this class, we speak English refrito, English con sal y limón, English thick as mango juice, English poured from a clay jug, English tuned like a requinto from Uruapan, English lighted by Oaxacan dawns, English spiked with mezcal from Juchitan, English with a red cactus flower blooming in its heart. Welcome, welcome, amigos del sur. Bring your Zapotec tongues, your Nahuatl tones, your patience of pyramids, your red suns and golden moons, your guardian angels, your duendes, your patron saints. Santa tristeza, santa alegría, santo todo lo puede. We will sprinkle holy water on pronouns, make the sign of the cross on past participles, Jump like fish on Lake Pascuaro on gerants. Pour tequila from Jalisco on future perfects. Say shoes and shit. Grab a cool verb and apoyo loco. And dance on the walls like chapulines. When a teacher from La Joya or a cowboy from Santee ask you, Do you speak English? You'll answer, Si. Sí. Yes. Simon. Of course. I love English. And you will hum a Mishtek chant that touches la tierra and the heavens. Hola, hola, dear listeners of Tres Cuentos, the bilingual podcast dedicated to the literary, historical, and traditional narratives of Latin America. I am Carolina Quiroga Stoltz. And today we finalize exploring the courageous and at times painful journey of Latinx in the United States. The poem I read was written by the Chicana poet Gina Valdez. You can find it in the book Cool Salsa, bilingual poems on growing up Latino in the United States. However, the poem was originally published by Arte Publico Press in the journal America's Review, Volume 21, Number 1. Oscar Hijuelos, the first Hispanic American to win a Pulitzer Prize, once said, I even now think of that strange term, Hispanic, as meaning his panic. I wonder how many Hispanic immigrants live in a sort of panic mode, how they handle it and cope with it. What are the psychological effects of being in constant alert, whether you have papers or not? I can only speak for myself. I confess that every time I go out, I grab my camandula, a rosary of 33 grains I have hanging from the view mirror of my car. I pray, 
Dear Saint Michael the Archangel, please protect me from racist people, reckless drivers, and animals crossing the road. I have never seen so many dead animals on the streets than here in the United States. Are they in panic too? Today's episode will have a couple of guests, author Paz Ellis and scholar and author Clara Rodriguez. So stay tuned because they have remarkably interesting things to say. Plus, as it is customary, we will close the program with another story. This season's last narrative on Latinx literatures is taken from a chapter of the book Odyssey to the North, written by the Salvadorian-American Mario Bencastro. The book was published by Arte Publico Press and translated by Susan Gierbeck Rascón. The narration comes in the voice of Luis Martín from the program Studio Confessions, the art program. But I will tell you more about him when we get to the comments. Today's story explores the invisibility of many Hispanic or Latino migrant workers who, in truth, are sly like a shadow and even have the skills of Spider-Man. They would climb dangerous heights with no insurance or equipment at all, just to gather a modest sum of dollars to make their own humble American dreams come true. Odyssey to the North by Mario Bencastro Narrated by Luis Martín It's going to be a beautiful day here in Washington, exclaimed the voice on the radio. Clear blue skies, 70 degrees, sunny, with no threat of rain. A perfect spring day. Two policemen were making their rounds in the Adams Morgan District, the windows of their patrol car open to receive the cool breeze which caressed the groves of trees in Rock Creek Park, carrying the perfume of the multicolored flowers outlined against the delicate blue sky. The metallic voice coming over the transmitter from headquarters, shook them out of their deep thoughts, ordering them to proceed immediately to a building on Harvard Street, across from the zoo, just a few minutes away. When they arrived on the scene, they had to fight their way through the crowd of residents who had come running in response to the desperate shouts of a woman. They ordered the people to move aside, and then they saw the cause of the commotion. A smashed body stuck to the hot cement, the cranium was demolished. Facial features were disfigured by a grimace of pain. The eyes were still open with an enigmatic gaze. The arms and legs were arranged incoherently, not at all in the normal symmetry of a human body. One leg was bent with the foot up by the neck. One shoulder was completely separated from the body, as if it had been chopped off. Spider-Man! Someone exclaimed. One of the policemen approached the man who had shouted and said to him, Hey, show some respect. This is no joke. The man turned around and walked away, hanging his head. But as soon as he was out of the officer's reach, he turned around and screamed, Spider-Man! Spider-Man! And took off running towards the zoo, where he hid among some bushes. The policeman started to chase him, but settled for insulting the man silently, biting his lips to keep the words from escaping. Is there anyone here who knows the victim? asked the other officer, scrutinizing the group of curious onlookers with an indecisive expression. No one there to say a word. You, he asked a brown-skinned man. Do you know him? I don't speak English, the man answered fearfully. Two, 
Conocer muerto? insisted the officer, stammering in thickly accented Spanish. I don't speak Spanish either, said the man in a broken English. I am from Afghanistan. The policeman appeared utterly disconcerned at the people's silence. The loud sound of the lion's roar came from the zoo. Finally, a woman approached the man in uniform and in an anxious voice said, I was coming home from the store, and when I was climbing the stairs to go into the building, I heard a scream. Then I saw the shape of a man in the sky, with his arms stretched out like he was flying. But he came crashing down, head first, on the cement. He was just a ball of flesh and blood. He didn't move anymore. The people listened, open mouthed as the terrified woman described what had happened. One of the officers took down all the details in a small notebook. A reporter took countless photographs per second as if unable to satisfy his camera. The shouts of Spider-Man, Spider-Man were heard again, but this time they were completely ignored. Calixto was among the spectators, stunned, terrified, and livid, unable to say a word about the tragedy incapable of testifying that as they were washing the windows outside the eighth floor, the rope tied around his companion's waist broke. Calixto feared that they would blame him for the death and he would end up in jail, if not deported for being undocumented. And then, he thought, who would support my family? The superintendent of the building was observing the scene from the lobby. He was not willing to talk either. He feared he would lose his job for permitting windows at that height to be washed without proper equipment for such a dangerous task. It would come out that he employed undocumented workers and paid them only a third of what cleaning companies usually charged. The ambulance sirens sounded in the neighborhood with such shrillness that it frightened the animals in the zoo. The lion roared as if protesting all the commotion. The paramedics made their way through the crowd and laid a stretcher on the ground next to the body. After a brief examination, one of them said dryly, He's dead, confirming what everyone already knew. Who is he? One of the paramedics asked the police. What's his name? No one knows, responded the officer. Nobody seems to recognize him. He looks Hispanic, stated the other paramedic, observing the body closely. Maybe he's from Central America said a woman, clutching her purse to her chest. A lot of them live in the neighborhood, you know. They come here fleeing the wars in their countries. If he isn't from El Salvador, he must be from Guatemala, agreed one of the paramedics. Although, now they're all coming from all over. Bolivia, Peru, Colombia. We used to be the ones who invaded their countries. Now they invade ours. Soon, Washington will look like Latin America. Poor devils, said the other paramedic. They die so far from home like strangers. Meanwhile, in the zoo, the lion's loud roar was answered by that of the lioness. The pair of felines, oblivious to the conflicts going on around them, were consummating the reproduction of their species, part of the ancient rite of spring. paramedics put the body into the ambulance. The policemen left. The crowd dispersed. The strange red stain remained on the cement. 
Calixto entered the zoo and began to walk absentmindedly among the cages, thinking about his co-worker who had just half an hour ago had been telling him that he had already bought his ticket to return to his country, that he planned to open a grocery store with the money he had saved from five years of hard work in the United States. Suddenly, Calixto realized that in a matter of minutes, he had become unemployed. Despair seized him as he remembered that it had taken him a month and a half of constant searching to get the window washing job. He spent the entire day at the zoo, and as he agonized over whether to return to his country or stay in Washington, he walked from one end of the zoo to the other several times. When they closed the park, he began to walk down long streets with strange names until finally, night fell. And he had no choice but to return to the place where he lived, a tiny one-bedroom apartment occupied by 20 people. At least, I am alive, he said to himself. That's good enough for me. Very well, dear listeners, before we dive more deeply into the complexities of being a Latino immigrant in the United States, and even explore the so-called American dream through the stories of our guests, I want to introduce and thank today's new voice. Luis Martin, also known as The Art Engineer, is a collage artist, podcaster, and culture maker. Originally from Los Angeles, California, and now based in New York City, Martin's work stems from a deep creative and spiritual inquiry while creating with the passion of the New York hustle. The artist created the term The Art Engineer for his thesis project in art school, which granted him creative license to unapologetically explore various roles, such as curator, community organizer, and writer from a place of leadership and curiosity that extends the artist's studio. Martin's program, Studio Confessions, the Art Podcast, is his way to share first-hand experiences of being an emerging artist and sharing a person's of color's point of view. With over 20 years of experience as an artist, curator, and museum educator, Luis Martin leverages his curiosity, ambition, and pop psych wit to deliver bi-weekly conversations and monologues you will want to listen in on. You can find more about Luis Martin at studioconfessions.com and luismartinart.com. As I mentioned at the beginning of the program, we will have other voices, but I will introduce them right before they share their stories and knowledge with us. In the meantime, I wanted to announce that this year I will be doing a special program on Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead, that will come up around the time when this wonderful celebration honors the dead. So please subscribe and follow us so you do not miss the episode because it is packed with good stuff and, of course, cuentos, stories. I want to thank all our new subscribers. Many names and emails have come pouring through my email inbox. If you haven't yet, please subscribe or follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Tres Cuentos Podcast. That way you will know about the new opportunities that you as a listener will have in our program in the future. Also, if you found us on iTunes and you like the program, consider dropping a positive review. 
Before we start, how about we listen to Luis Martín? He wants to tell us more about his program, Studio Confessions, the art podcast. Have you ever wondered what inspires artists or what it means to be a culture maker? Step into the studio and listen in to Studio Confessions, the art podcast. With me, Luis Martín, the art engineer. Let me connect you to fascinating artists making wonderful things. I'll connect you to writers, dancers, activists, card readers, all of the magical people that make this world an awesome place. To live a more inspired and beautiful life. That's right. I said beautiful. I'm glad you're here. Studio Confessions, the art podcast. Available everywhere you find your favorite podcast. Or visit studioconfessions.com. We are ready to start our analysis of the immigrant stories of Latinos. Do you remember the poem I read at the beginning of the program by Gina Valdez, English con salsa? It reminded me that while I was doing my master's in storytelling at the East Tennessee State University and working at the Language and Culture Resource Center, or LCRC, Part of my duties as office manager was to join some of the programs we offered to the local Hispanic community in the area. One I signed up for immediately to join was teaching the basics of English to migrant women. Why women? Because normally their spouses already spoke some survival English that they had learned at the fields where most of them worked picking fruit. Some were seasonal workers, but most of them had chosen to bring their families to stay, instead of having to leave them for half a year somewhere in Mexico or Central America. These women were called new arrivals. They could not work yet because they did not speak English and had young children under their care, children that they would bring to their classes. The classes were held in the afternoon at a local school, and the LCRC staff members would take turns to teach certain afternoons of the week. I confess that the best parts of the process were just talking to these women, hearing their stories, laughing and empathizing, and knowing that in the end, we were all in a quite similar situation, adapting to the new environment, but in our terms. These women were at times afraid and hopeful, lost and grateful. On the other hand, the times I got to work with the farm working men who normally work about more than 16 hours a day straight for days in the fields were quite rare. But I remember some would come with their teenage boys who were hoping to get a job at the farm too to help. My impression of these young men and their fathers was of contentment for being together at last. They were happy their families was finally reunited, but they wanted to be invisible to the rest of the world. They were reluctant to be found, to participate, to give their information, even when they had papers. They were always looking over their shoulder. Normally, they would relax when I would start speaking Spanish, but they would only talk so much. This sort of distrusting or skeptical attitude was their way to be on guard to stay out of trouble. They knew how to move around the farm, to go about their business, what places to avoid, who to talk, and who to hide from. 
like the main characters in Mario Ben Castro's story, Odyssey to the North. Sadly, nowadays the number of immigrants has increased around the world. The International Organization for Immigration says in its 2020 report, the number of international migrants is estimated to be almost 272 million globally, with nearly two-thirds being labor migrants. This figure remains a very small percentage of the world's population, at 3.5%, meaning that the vast majority of people globally, 96.5%, are estimated to be residing in the country in which they were born. However, the estimated number and proportion of international migrants already surpasses some projections made for the year 2050, which were in the order of 2.6% or 230 million. That said, it is widely recognized that the scale and pace of international migration is notoriously difficult to predict with precision because it is closely connected to acute events such as severe instability, economic crisis or conflict, as well as long-term trends such as demographic change, economic development, communications technology advances and transportation access. The 2020 report continues saying, We also know from long-term data that international migration is not uniform across the world, but is shaped by economic, geographic, demographic, and other factors resulting in distinct migration patterns, such as migration corridors, developed over many years. The largest corridor tend to be from developing countries to larger economies such as those of the United States, France, the Russian Federation, the United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia. This pattern is likely to remain the same for many years into the future, especially as populations in some developing subregions and countries are projected to increase in coming decades, placing migration pressure on future generations. You can find the link to the full report in the transcript, that is, in our website, www.trescuentos.com. In my opinion, when people choose to leave behind their lands and culture for the unknown, the reasons are often disturbing. Migration should not be seen as a modern phenomenon. It is in the human DNA to wander, move, colonize, set roots, and then move again. Just because you have lived in the same place for decades, that does not mean that one day the forces of nature or political upheaval will not cause you to relocate. Just look at the wildfires in California, or how many times Louisiana has been hit by hurricanes. Some choose to endure the troubles and remain. Others, when rebuilding of their homes becomes a burden they do not want to have to go through again, they move on. Nonetheless, I do not want you to think that there are better or more acceptable reasons to embrace migrants. By this, I mean that some people may feel more sympathetic hearing the sad migrant story of someone that lost their home due to natural disasters, but may not feel very empathetic or compassionate when hearing the story of someone that migrated because of political violence in their home country. This reaction comes from feeling that it is not our problem, but it is. Every so-called developed country reached its current state of freedom, order, and progress at the expense of many of the countries that are suffering now. France was a cruel colonizer in Africa and the Middle East, and now they have an influx of people from many of those places. England has a large Indian population because they had a large colony in India until the first half of the 20th century. 
Today, there are about 1.4 million Indians in the UK, that is, the single largest visible ethnic minority population in the country. And the same can be said about the U.S., but in a somewhat different way. The U.S. did not set up colonies in Latin American countries. It just applied a cruel, violent, and manipulative foreign policy in several countries, with the intentions and result of increasing the U.S. economic power. Thus, many of the migrants that are pouring into the country come from some of the destinations where the U.S. meddled, pulled strings, and supported corruption, coups, and dictators. Today, we are seeing the backlash of those old foreign policies. The proof is detailed in our past episodes and in the literature of many Latin American authors who wrote in hopes to get their own people to remember their past and prepare for the future. So, you can do the homework and enlighten yourself. You will also want to keep listening to our program because, as my chiropractor would say, everything is connected. That accounts for our politics, economies, and destiny. And I am here to keep telling those stories that connect us. About the journey of assimilation that many newcomers have to go through and the challenges that the children of immigrants have to face even when they are technically born in the U.S., I would like to let our first guest talk more about it. But let me introduce her then. Paz Ellis is the voice who read one of the articles written by the Argentine poet Alfonsina Storni in episode 30, and I am pleased to say that it has gotten a good number of downloads. As those who have been with us for a while now, I do not perform interviews in the program. The idea had not crossed my mind until I got an email from Paz. Back in May, she emailed me presenting her book, Plantains and the Seven Plagues, a memoir, half Dominican, half Cuban, and full life, which now is available in Spanish too. At the time, she asked if she could participate in the program. I explained to her that the podcast was not interview-oriented, but I would love for her to read a narration and that, of course, I would mention her literary accomplishments. She immediately said yes, and from then on, she has been very receptive to anything I asked her, including being an interviewee in the program. Now, this does not mean that we are transforming the program, just that I am more open to experimentation and to bringing other voices. I wanted to say all this about Paz Ellis because her kind nature and flexibility made me genuinely want to hear more about her journey and to share it with you. So, who is Paz Ellis? She's a photographer, entrepreneur, and self-published author. She recently released an updated and second edition of her book, Plantains and the Seven Plagues, a memoir half Dominican, half Cuban, and full life. At the time of release of this episode, I am halfway through her book. I like it very much and enjoy finding commonalities between her parents and mine. In the following segment, you will hear more about the story of Paz Ellis as the daughter of two immigrants, how she spoke Dominican-Cuban Spanish at home, how she shifted gears to be American, and how she became her parents' translator, interpreter, and advocate when their English skills were still a work in progress. So let's hear Paz's story. She will begin exploring the topic of the complexities of being a daughter of immigrants in the U.S. Well, 
growing up in the early 70s as a child of a Dominican mother and Cuban father, I would say the complexities involved speaking a different language at home and having specific customs at home. Some adhered to Cuban, some adhered to Dominican. And when I step outside the door, I have to be an American. I speak English. I want to be like every other girl in school, but I'm not. That was a, an, an issue. I wouldn't say this is a complexity, but it was, it's just part of what it was like to grow up where your parents are really strict. Your father only wants English spoken in the house. And then you, I go to school and I'm speaking Spanish because I've got that in my brain. And my kindergarten teacher, my first grade teacher, they're all like, are you a stupid guy? You know, they call me names because I was one of the few first Hispanics in that particular school in our town at the time. So it was difficult to deal with that. And then, and I know you probably have run across this with a lot of people that are children of immigrants. Your parents, they're raising you. But when they're an immigrant and they don't speak the language, you're almost raising them in the sense that you're helping them assimilate. You're taking them to the doctor's office, to the lawyer's office, to uh, get the citizenship papers ready, whatever it is. Um, you're going to the DMV and you're translating. And you're like this tall, <laughs> you know, you're, you're five, you're seven, you're eight, you're nine, and you're embarrassed and you're scared. And those are the kind of things that I dealt with and that I know a lot of people have dealt with as, you know, a child of immigrants. Um, a lot of people assume that if you don't speak the language, you're stupid. And I, I spoke it because I learned it at home with my older sister, thank God. But, um, and I had a, a few situations with my mom or, or early on in years where I'd be speaking to her and we'd be speaking in Spanish and someone in line, wherever at the bank would turn around and say, you know, it's rude to speak in a different language. This is America. And I'd turn around and I was little and I, I was shy, but I was so angry. And I, and my mom by then had, was already picking up the language. And I turn around and say, you know, excuse me, one, it's none of your business. And two, how many languages do you speak? I speak two. And I clearly understood what you said. You know, so yeah, I grew up with this, like, you'd think I was seven feet tall and I'm five feet tall. But I, you have this thing on your, like this chip on your shoulder because you're expecting someone to always um, look at your mom the wrong way. Or my, my mother was dark. My father was white you know, that kind of thing. So I was always on the defensive. And I think those are complexities and things that children have to deal with when they come from an immigrant family. Um, it's almost like you're an immigrant yourself because as much as you want to be, like I write in my book that I, I named all my dolls Jennifer. It was really stupid. And I was going to name my daughters if I ever had any, which I did and I have boys, Jennifer. Like Jennifer sounded so American to me. And um, of course, I grew out of that because I'm proud of who I am. And I like my first name. I do. I like my first name is Ivelisse, and I, I'm proud of that. My mother gave me that name. And she's named me after someone in her country, some girl that was beautiful. And she used to say as she was young, my daughter's going to be named Ivelisse. And that's fine. But in school, it was an issue. And uh, in life, it's been a pain in the neck to try. <laughs>
<laughs> to try to, you know, spell it, pronounce it. But that's the main, I would say the main component of growing up as a child of immigrants, um, dealing with um, society. Um, in the early 70s, you'd think, oh, you know, you've already dealt with civil rights and things like that. But being Hispanic is different. I mean, we speak different types of Spanish, too. So that's another issue. You know, and it was it was interesting. It was interesting, but as a little girl, it was pretty scary. Um, and I helped my parents grow, and they finally learned English. I feel that our commonality are, first of all, there's so many countries that are involved that are in Central America, South America. Um, you have you also have Brazil. You have so many languages, so many dialects within. Um, our own language of Spanish. So if I'm going to tell you, um, like my purse, you know, or backpack is, is mochila and, you know, to Mexicans, I don't know what it is to Argentinians, uh, a blanket is something else. Um, even within our own community as Hispanics, we have our own little things that make it difficult for us to communicate amongst ourselves. But we have the connection, which I think is important, of the fact that we came to this country. I mean, I was born here, but my parents came to this country with a dream because this is the land of opportunity. And I find that most of Latinos or most of anyone who comes here, they love this country and they see all the opportunity. Whereas the people that were born and raised here, they kind of take it for granted. And I've never taken that for granted because I saw how much my parents worked and struggled. And even, you know, shortly even before her death, my mom was very patriotic. She loved her country. And I think that we all have that. We might have a difference of opinions, this culture right now and in this political arena, um, we have differences of opinion. But the fact is, we are all in the same boat. We all came from kind of the same place. Why didn't my dad stay in Cuba? Why didn't my mom stay in Dominican Republic? Because we all came here for something. I think that brings us together. And instead of looking at our differences, I think we are all tied together in that, in our dreams. And, and we're risk takers. Because how many people do you know that were born and raised here have never left their town? We didn't just leave our towns. We left entire countries, continents. So I think we're pretty hot stuff. And it takes, it takes a lot to move. Like we're moving now, you know, out of state. And that's a big move. But to do what our parents did, what maybe you did, um, I think that's big. And I think that should unite us. Imagine how many children grow up faster than others because they must assume adult roles. Well... That is the situation nowadays of many children of immigrant parents. Before we listen to our last guest, let's hear about Pass Ellie's book. Well, my book is Plantains and the Seven Plagues, Half Dominican, Half Cuban, and Full Life. It is available on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Apple, Google Play, anywhere really online. You might find it in bookstores if smaller bookstores have picked it up. My book is a memoir. And it happened because my mother passed away for a little over four years ago. And when she passed away, I wasn't ready 
I was, it was kind of a shock to us and I was grieving and I was not in a good place. So I decided that I needed to kind of let my creativity, which for years I've been writing, but I never did anything with it, to kind of do something with it. And I wanted to honor the memory of my parents. And that is where I get the title, The Plantains Refers to Dominicans and The Seven Plagues, My Father in Search of Those Plagues to Come Down on Castro and Free the People of Cuba. But um, in my book, I talk about when my parents met, uh, how they met, where they met, um, some stories about my mom. She, was, um, she suffered from chronic depression all my life. So that is a theme in my book because it's like a cloud over my head, over our heads, my sisters and I we were growing up. You know, and then I just, I go on and talk about the family and family reunions and um, the bonds that we have. And then my mom dies and, and I talk about the world without my mother. So the book, it's just a chunk of my life. It starts when my parents met. So I guess that's not my life. Then I was born and then, you know, it goes on to up to my mother's death. And it means a lot to me. It, um, of course, it, it immortalizes. To me, it immortalizes my parents and, and they're on the cover. So um, I, I love that. They were really young in that picture, um, those pictures in there. Our last guest is Dr. Clara E. Rodriguez, a professor of sociology at Fordham University College at Lincoln Center. She is the author of numerous books, including America as Seen on TV, How Television Shapes Immigrant Expectations Around the Globe. She is the recipient of numerous research and teaching awards, including the American Sociological Association Award for Distinguished Contributions to Research in the Field of Latina Latino Studies. And I could keep going. But I am placing a link in the transcript so you can find more about her brilliant career. Today, Dr. Rodriguez will tell us more about the American dream and Latinx in the U.S. mass media. This whole idea of, of who is included in the American dream raises the question, and, and this has a lot to do with what ends up on the screen, and whether or not Latinx are included here or not included is, is relevant to your question. Yes, Latinx Americans, like other groups, have often faced barriers to full acceptance and inclusion in American life, and they, like other groups, have faced discrimination in employment, in housing and in treatment. And while Latinx communities in the US have made progress in each of these arenas, there are still barriers that influence their full inclusion in and their pursuit of the American dream. One of these barriers has to do with perceptions. And the media, especially the free mass media, which the majority of viewers still consume, despite the shift to social media platforms and streaming, plays an important role in shaping how the American dream is viewed and who are the legitimate pursuers of the American dream. Consequently, the mass media has played and continues to play an important role in how Latinx are perceived by others. This was really brought home to me a number of years ago when I had the following experience. 
a newly hired Latinx assistant professor shared with me that when she went to her uni university's childcare center to enroll her child, they assumed that she was one of the childcare workers and not a faculty member. By the way, her university was generally considered to be well, a well-regarded progressive institution. I wonder now, thinking about your question, how did this experience influence her views of the American dream? And how often do countless stories like hers, all too common for Latinx, ever make it into our media? How often have Latinx with doctoral or professional degrees been called Miss instead of doctor? Ms. for the more politically correct, Mrs. or Mr. in other employment or professional settings. There's a, a major um, essay out there uh, that's uh, it, it's entitled, They Call Me Dr. Barry. And it was written by an African-American organic chemist who was always assumed to be part of the help. And when she would go to, um, to sign in at the conferences that she and her colleagues in organic chemistry attended, they would ask her, what is your name? And she said, they call me Dr. Barry. <laughs> and, 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 and I'm reminded of that in terms of this question. But my question is, how does the exclusion of stories um, such as, as this newly hired Latinx assistant professor, how does the exclusion of stories such as hers and the countless others that we don't see on TV, how does it influence how we, all Americans, think about the American dream? And how would the inclusion of such stories influence our views of the American dream? How would we think about the American dream? How would we think about the United States? Uh, finally, does the absence of such stories in mass media shed light on the obstacles or challenges that exist when Latinx pursue the American dream? And how does this omission or the recent portrayals of Latinx influence young Latinx, given that the U.S.'s future is, will, will be greatly influenced by the makeup of its youngest cohort, which is increasingly projected to be people of color with Latinx accounting for the major growth in population. Given these demographic changes, how do media images of Latinx influence not just Latinx children, but all children? In essence, this, given this lack of representation, and the persistent display of narrow conceptions and stereotypes of Latinx Americans in both entertainment and news outlets, how does this mediascape influence the way in which people, both Latinx and non-Latinx, see the American dream? For as a professor of media studies and communications, Merskin uh, has earlier noted, this is very, I say this all the time, the longer and more regularly the same information is presented in the same way to the same audiences, the more they become normalized in the American popular imagination. And with regard to Latinx, there's a long history here. And here I'm going to cite Felix Gutierrez, who's Professor Emeritus of Journalism and Communication at the Annenberg School in California and a veteran chronicler of Latinx images. And he's noted a common film tropes for Latinx as greasy banditos, fat mamacitas, 
romantic Latin lovers, lazy peons sleeping under sombreros, short-tempered Mexican spitfires, violent revolutionaries, faithful servants, again the maid, gang members, and sexy senoritas with low-cut blouses and loose morals. As he notes, these stereotypes have long been staples of Latinx images in fiction, film, and television. So there's a long history here. With regard to news media, he also has observed that when Latinos were covered in Anglo news media during much of the 20th century, the shorthand words to trigger stereotypes of Latinos as posing a threat were suit suitors in the 1940s, wetbacks in the 1950s, Chicano militants in the 1960s, and illegal aliens in the 1970s and 1980s. Well, if you had not before asked yourself why you do not see many Latinos in U.S. TV series or films, now your eyes are opened. From now on, you might start noticing more the lack of representation of such a large community. You might even start questioning the roles that are assigned depending on gender and race. Granted, things have gotten slightly better over the past decade. Yet, there is still much to improve. Before closing the program, I want to leave you with a very funny story published about 100 years ago on November 8, 1924, by the Mexican journalist Jorge Ulica. His birth name was Julio G. Arce and was born in Guadalajara, Mexico. His criticism of the Mexican government caused him to receive death threats that in 1915 forced him into exile. After considering Buenos Aires, Argentina, as his next destination, but for reasons that are still unknown, he ended up in San Francisco, California. Until his death in 1926, he published a series of biting satirical sketches called Crónicas Diabólicas, Diabolical Chronicles, that had nothing to do with the evildoer. They were critical sketches, that evaluated society in its often weird ways. They were always delivered with gentle but biting humor. Here is one of those sketches about the elections and how some folks make up their minds. So, enjoy it and consider voting. I didn't cast my vote, but I sure was cast out by Jorge Ulica. Translated by Terry Martin. The elections have passed. Thank God. I can live in peace and quiet without hearing the doorbell ring every second and without having to respond to the calls of individuals and delegations soliciting votes. Besides the election of high functionaries, there were 43 propositions put to vote in the last elections, in which, as it is easy to suppose, some people were pro and others were con. And the ones who were pro and the ones who were con went from house to house and place to place, preaching in favor of their ideals. Vote yes on amendments such and such. Don't vote against universal suffrage. Support the municipal workers. Vote yes. Vote no. Oh, this was 
constantly repeated during the days before the election. And now that the thing was over, as they say here, one can frankly breathe an atmosphere of undisturbed peace. Of course, I voted neither yes nor no. I neither play nor compose the music of elections in this land. The first who come to see me were the boxers. They talked to me about Dempsey and Willard, about Furpo and about Romero Rojas, about Gibbons and about Carpentier, and they made me cry when they referred to our compatriot, Tony Fuentes. Here is the final part of their speech. You know that in this land, the law only permits a maximum of four rounds of punches on the nose. In four bouts, you cannot always technically slap a guy until he is left snoring without ribs, either with one jawbone less or his nostrils beaten to a pulp. So vote yes on Amendment 7, which will allow 12 full rounds of pounding. I was still crying when the delegation left, not because of the excitement that Tony's triumphs had caused, but because of the pats on the back that two or three of the boxers had given me when they thought they had obtained my vote. Each one of them had hit me as if he wanted to knock me out with one stroke. Then the firemen came. They demonstrated the necessity of voting for Amendment 40 in order to raise their salaries and promised me that if I voted yes, they would see that I was saved in the event of a fire at my house with as little harm to me as possible. They went up to my bedroom, looked out the windows, estimated my weight, and in order to show me their efficiency... They threw me out of the window onto a blanket that others were holding on the patio below. I didn't suffer but a big bump on the back of my head. The supporters of Amendment 43, who wanted to remove all the corpses from the old cemeteries in order to urbanize the sad places, also requested my vote, offering me in exchange a plot of land in any of the modern necropolises. Say no to the rejection of previous agreements. But I have no intention of dying here, I declared to the generous donors. Why not? We will see that you give us the pleasure of always having you among us, they replied sweetly. Then they added, otherwise, vote no on Amendment 43. Hours later, When the evening shadows appeared like morning draperies on the horizon, another delegation arrived. It consisted of two gentlemen and a lady who were strangely dressed in black. The three were thin, pallid, and cadaverous, and their teeth chattered as though they were cold. In a hollow and cavernous voice, the woman declared, "'Vote no on Amendment 43.' Vote no, repeated one of the two gentlemen. Vote no, resounded the echo from the lips of the third individual. They immediately explained that it would be an atrocious offense to remove the dead from the holes and carry them off to God knows where, thereby interrupting their sweet sleep of death. 
They spoke, gestured, and stared in such a way that they frightened me. I offered to vote for everything they wanted. They finally departed, leaving behind a card on the table which read, Confederation of Corpses that Neither Wish to Leave Nor Be Removed, Amendment 43, Vote, No, No, and No. Since that day, I have suffered from nightmares, and from midnight on I see gloomy phantoms. I hear mournful howls, too. I am told that it's the stray cat's meowing, but who knows if it is not really the dead that wander around moaning. With this satirical anecdote written by Jorge Ulica about how terrifying elections can be, we finalize the season on Latinx literatures in the U.S. I will be back during the weekend of October 31st and November the 1st with a special program dedicated to Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. It's history, traditions, influences, and stories. So... Until the next Cuento de Muertos. The next story about the dead. Adios, adios. Tres Cuentos is an exercise of creative writing, researching, and retelling. This podcast was produced, recorded, and edited by Carolina Quiroga Stoltz. Prove listening, prove reading, and... The Voice of Jorge Ulica by my good friend Don Heimel. Remember to follow Tres Cuentos on iTunes, Google Podcast, or wherever you found us. And visit our website, trescuentos.com. The music and sound effects were downloaded from the YouTube Audio Library and freesound.org. The list of credits per song and the sources of this story can be found in the transcript. Thanks for listening. Adios, adios.